leading us this morning. Well, today we are in our fourth message in our current preaching series, uh, Intervention. And uh, we said for the purpose of this series, we have defined an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. Uh, in both, you know, and we, when we look at that, we're looking at both our individual lives and in our lives as the church. Now, the scriptural basis of our series is the seven messages to uh, the seven churches in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And we said that uh, the whole purpose in looking at these verses, what we are looking for in, in this over these few weeks is simply this. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, his church. That if we refuse to listen, to hear, to respond to the message that God by his Holy Spirit is saying to us as individuals and as his church, how will we ever expect the world to listen to the message that we are trying to communicate to them. And so in our first message, we laid the groundwork for the book of Revelation, just basically talking about an overview of the book itself. And then uh, our second message was the first church, Ephesus, and we said people will not hear the good news if they do not experience our genuine love for them. In our third message, when we looked at Smyrna, we said if we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel We must model faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of the hardships of life. And so today we're going to look at Pergamum, third church, our fourth message. And today we'll see that if we desire our world to receive the message of the gospel, we must be consistent in how we live our lives, not compromising to align to culture. And so we've been looking at this little map that shows us where uh, these seven churches were located and also where John was receiving the, uh, the vision and, and, and writing the material. And so as we're working our way north, we, unlike the other two cities that we've considered already, Pergamum was not a port city. It was actually located inland along the fertile Caicos uh, River Valley, about 65 kilometers north of Smyrna. It's a wealthy, uh, a very beautiful and wealthy city. And it boasted, for those of you who like books, uh, it boasted an incredible library of 200,000 scrolls. And in fact, at this time, it was second only to the world historical famous library in Alexandria, which was 650,000 to a million scrolls, but it, it rivaled, it was second only to Alexandria in that regard. It was a center, as many of the other churches and cities were, for emperor worship in Asia and hosted uh, multiple temples designated for emperor worship. On top of that, there were so many other altars and temples to so many gods that just literally just scattered all through the city of Pergamum. Interestingly, Pergamum was the center of administrative justice and had been given the power, the rare power, of capital punishment, which was symbolized by the sword. And so the sword 
was the symbol because the sword held the power of life and death. And so this administrative center, the symbol of the city was the sword. The name Pergamum means citadel. The city is, was built on a thousand-foot cone-shaped mountain, and these are, this is just a pic of the ruins, but you can see it was right up at the top of this thousand-foot cone-shaped mountain, and, uh, and so some significance of that we'll see as we go along this morning. Our scripture today, if you're following along, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and uh, Wayne had a full load today reading the scripture and, and uh, now off with the junior highs. Not sure about you, but I would pick the scripture every day of the week. But uh, good on him for uh, being with amazing young people today. The message that I have uh, and the message that uh, Jesus communicated follows the same outline as we saw in the first church we considered Ephesus. That It begins with applause, which is praising what's good, then shifting to accountability, exposing problems that needed attention, and then end it with action, a call to action, what the church was called to do uh, to turn things around in light of what Jesus was pointing out. So that's the pattern we're going to follow as well this morning. We'll start with applause. With each church that we've considered, it is important for us to remember that Christianity was new, and Christians were a very misunderstood group of people. I mean, these were people who called each other brothers and sisters. And so many outside of Christianity thought that they were an incestuous group. Uh, many of them knew that they uh, practiced communion, the Holy Eucharist, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, and they were accused of being cannibals, that they actually ate people. And so they were really, really misunderstood because they were like no other group that ever came on the scene. They seemingly came out of nowhere, very different than everyone else in terms of morality and worship and love and faith. And so as with the other churches, Jesus makes it very clear to this particular church in the city of Pergamum that he knows. He knows. I used to love saying that to my kids when they were driving in the vehicle, when they were sort of in those earlier teen years when they had friends in the car and we just drive along and I'd say, and by the way, I know. And the car would go quiet, and the friend, I could hear the friend whispering, does he really know? Does he know? And I would, of course, I'm just, you know, I go, well, what is it I should know? And I would always remind them, I work for God. I know everything. And so uh, that was a good opportunity to keep kind of things in check. He knows. He knows because he's present in the church. He knows because he says he walks among his people. He's familiar. He's in the midst of it. He knows intimately, personally, firsthand. So what is it exactly that Jesus knows? What is it that he knows about this particular church in this particular city? What is it about, per about Pergamum that he knows? Well, he says he knows that it's a sinful culture. He says, I know where you live. This church is located in a city that is a hostile and difficult place for faithful followers of Jesus to live. He refers to this city as a place where Satan has his throne because it is such an incredible, enormous center for pagan worship. The large cone-shaped hill that we saw on the picture of the remains 
marked the skyline of Pergamum, and it was covered, literally covered, with heathen temples and altars as you looked up upon the city. Everywhere you turned in Pergamum, you came face to face with pagan worship and practices. And Christians in this city stood out more than they probably even would have in most cities because of the stark contrast of this city and, and, and the culture there and these followers of Jesus. To refuse to engage in the culture's worship would draw attention, would provoke hostility, would create persecution for these people. This was not an easy place to live for a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus wants them to know, I want you to know I understand the culture. I understand the place that you're, you're living in. I understand how difficult life is for you every moment of the day. I know and I understand. I see it. The second thing he points out that he knows is that he knows their commitment. In the midst of this evil city, there are followers, he says, and you are holding to my name. You are holding to my name. The word holding here means to have a firm grasp, a strong attachment, to not let something go. It's actually the same word that's used when, when, when Jesus refers to himself as, as holding the seven stars or the seven leaders of the churches in his hands. It's the same word. They, you know, he holds them and they are holding on to him. And so when Roman authorities would come to these Christians and demand that they say Caesar is Lord, they would respond with Jesus is Lord. And they would not let go of his name. They would not compromise their faith in him, even in the midst of intense pressure and intimidation and persecution. Satan tried to undermine their loyalty to Jesus by persecuting them, but they wouldn't let go, and they wouldn't give in. And, and Jesus says to them, he says, you did not deny my faith. My faith here means the witness of Jesus. They would not cease to be his witnesses even when they were pressured. Even when they witnessed, and Jesus uses an example that, that they're aware of, a, a person named Antipas. And he said, even when you witness Antipas, who was a faithful follower, when you, when you even watched with your own eyes as he was publicly martyred for his faith, you didn't compromise. You didn't give in. You didn't let go. Now, we don't know anything specific about Antipas other than he was an example that Jesus uses of one who held to Jesus' name and would not deny his witness, which ultimately resulted in his death. These faithful followers would not compromise their witness, their commitment to Jesus under any circumstances. Even under the threat of death, they would not let go. And Jesus is applauding them because they are faithful witnesses. Secondly, accountability. Wouldn't it be great if the letter just ended there and, all right, let's just have coffee and hugs and go home. But the tone of the message changes in verse 14. 
So all these good things are said, and then Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Despite the fact that there was a group that held to his name and remained faithful, there were others, and I love the language here, who held to something different. Some are holding to his name, but some are holding to something different. They are holding to the teachings that permitted them, that encouraged them to compromise their faith. See, the truth is, this church was divided. There were those who held to Jesus, and there were those who, while claiming to hold to Jesus, were we're holding to sin and compromise. And so it's a, it's a mixed group of people. And those who are involving themselves in sinful activity while still a part of the church, Jesus says you're identifying with two specific lines of teaching. You're holding to two specific lines of teaching. The first is the teaching of Balaam. Now this is an Old Testament reference, and most of you probably know that. But King Balak, who was uh, who uh, of Mo, uh, you know, was the king of Moab, he hired this prophet named Balaam, who was a non-Israelite prophet, and he hired him, asking him to place a curse on the Israelites who were camped on the plains of Moab on the way to Canaan. Now I won't get into the whole story. That's the part where. The ass starts talking, and we know that from that that, you know, God intervenes, and instead of blessing, it ended up, uh, cursing, it ended up being a blessing, and, um, and God used a donkey to accomplish his purposes, which he often does. God intervened and wouldn't allow Balaam to succeed. And so in the failure of this plan, when Israel is now blessed instead of cursed, there's a new plan devised. If they're not able to destroy them from without, perhaps they can destroy them from within. And so Balaam suggested that perhaps the Moabite women could entice the Israeli men. And the word entice here is the word that's used for the part of the trap that the bait is put on that attracts someone to an animal, uh, to a trap, and then would ensnare them. And, and so that, that piece of the trap, is the word entice comes from that. And so the idea being here is that these women could entice. The women would seduce the Israelite men and lead them into idol worship, and the women were the bait. The women were the bait. And sadly, we read in Scripture that Balaam's plan worked because the Israelite men went after the bait, and they compromised and they entered into immorality, and they participated in idolatry. And the result is that God's judgment fell on Israel for their immorality and for their idolatry. And so what we see is that sexual immorality and idol worship, these two were prevalent, and in fact they were intermingled during these times in the city of Pergamum. It was common for people to participate in feasts to the pagan gods, and part of the participation of being a part of those feasts was temple prostitution. And so according to Jesus, there was a group 
of people present within this church who are part of the Pergamum church who claim to be followers of Jesus. And these people were encouraging others, teaching others that it was okay to participate in these practices. And so the people who wanted both worlds, they wanted to be followers of Jesus, but they wanted to be a part of what culture was doing. You know, they bought into it and justified their activity and convinced other people that this was okay. And so Jesus said, there's some of you there who hold on to that teaching. You're not holding on to me, you're holding on to that teaching. And then secondly, he said, you're holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we said when we were studying Ephesus, the information on the Nicolaitans is limited and there's just a little that we know, but what we do know is that they promoted and practiced the blended worship of God with cultural temple worship. And while there may have been some differences in their practices in comparison to this first group that we've just talked about, the same sin was basically committed. They taught that what one does with their body does not affect the soul that those two worlds can be separated, that how you live your everyday life and your spiritual condition are not necessarily linked. And so while some members of the church remained faithful to Jesus, others compromised by following teaching that led them astray, teaching that gave them permission to do whatever their sinful nature desired, do without having to feel guilty for doing it being completely justified that the sin was okay. They were guilty of allowing people, the church as a whole, were guilty of allowing people in the congregation to not be held accountable for this sin. And so Jesus addresses it. And then thirdly, we see action. Now we've defined, as I said in the beginning, an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. Jesus called out the church in Pergamum. He's confronted the church with truth. Truth about their inappropriate, sinful, compromising lifestyles. But it's not enough that he knows the truth. Because the reality is, Jesus knows. We, we know that, but that's not enough. They need to take action to bring change. Because intervention, as I've said before, is always ultimately about truth and love that brings change. Otherwise, it's just criticism and exposure. And so Jesus' agenda here is more than just criticizing them. It's more than judging them. It's more than condemning them. He's calling them to action because he wants them to change. He wants it to stop. And they need to change. And so he's calling for that. And first of all, he says, repent. Now, as we've seen in the challenge in the church of Ephesus, we talked about repentance and we said, Repent literally means to walk a new road, to change direction, to stop going where you've been going and start going somewhere else. They've gotten off on the wrong road. They've lost sight of the importance of some critical things. They're sinning. 
They're living in sin while claiming the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it's time to turn it around. Now, in addition, repentance means to despise one's past sins, to amend the damage that's been done as a result of one's sin. It's not enough to simply see the truth of where they are. They need to take the necessary steps. They need to make the necessary changes. They need to make the necessary amends for what they've done and those they've hurt. The word repent here in the Greek language is what's known as the aorist tense, which means it's, it's active, it's ongoing, at once, immediately. When Jesus says repent, he's not saying, you know what, take some time to think about it, pray about it, get back to me. He's saying repent, and you best do it this very second. Like right now, you need to repent without delay. Don't let one more second pass. And he's calling the whole congregation to repent. All of them may not have participated in these sinful activities, but all of them have tolerated it happening in their church, and they're accountable to it. And if they refuse to repent, Jesus says, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to fight you (laughs) with the sword of my mouth. Now, let's remember back to the beginning of the sermon. Pergamum, we said, was the center of administrative justice, had been given the power of capital punishment, which was symbolized by the sword. This city determined life and death. And what Jesus is saying here is that the sword I wield is the sword of truth and ultimate authority that stands above all other swords. And it's the sword of his mouth, his authority, and he reveals his truth and he pronounces judgment on those who've refused to repent. And so he says, you need to repent, and you need to do it now. And then he talks about the reward if they do. If they're willing to repent, to change their ways, to to stop compromising, there's going to be a reward for them. And he uses two illustrations which are interesting and unique to describe the reward. The first, sorry, is, is the hidden manna. Now, in the Old Testament, for those of you who are familiar with the Exodus, as they were going through the wilderness, God provided manna for the children of Israel, this bread from heaven, this literal translation of what is it. And they were journeying through the wilderness, and and this food from heaven would be appear every day on the ground, and the people would gather it, and it was a reminder of God's provision and God's faithfulness that it was their daily bread their daily dependence on God. They could, they could not keep the manna to the next day that it would, uh, you know, they tried to do that, even though they were told not to, and, and it would spoil because God had ordained it in such a way that, that they, couldn't, they had to rely on him every day. And so they weren't allowed to keep it. The exception was the Sabbath. Because they would not be allowed to gather on the Sabbath, they could gather enough the day before for two days, and miraculously, on those days, it wouldn't spoil. And they had enough for the two days. But God also wanted the future generation to have a visible, physical reminder, awareness of God's provision for their ancestors. And so God said, I want you to take some of the manna and I want you to place it inside of the Ark of the Covenant and it will be a reminder of 
you know, that it will be a reminder to the future generations that in this time, it was God who was faithful. Who was, it was God who had led you. It is God who took care of you. And that's important for the future generations to know so that they too will trust in God and be faithful to God. And because it was placed inside the ark, it was called the hidden manna. The hidden manna, because you couldn't see it. The manna outside the ark would decay at the end of each day, but the manna inside the ark, the hidden manna, would never decay. And what Jesus is saying to this church is this. If they are faithful, if they refuse to participate in the sinful practices of the culture that go against what it is that he desires of them, they're going to receive eternal life that will never end, that will never decay. His promise is bigger than the here and now. It has eternal implications. And then he says, uh, sorry, I keep doing that. I don't have a slide for this. White stone. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. I'll give you a white stone. There are two ideas communicated here in the reference to the white stones. First, stones were used by judges in court cases as part of the declaration of guilt and innocence. If the judge laid down the black stone, you were found guilty. If the judge laid down the white stone, you were declared innocent. Now remember, Pergamum was the center for administrative justice. Citizens of Pergamum would be very familiar with this practice. Jesus is declaring that the faithful believer would be declared innocent before God, symbolized by the giving of the white stone. The second thing is, Invitation to special events and banquets and these uh, immoral feasts and temple prostitution festivals and celebrations were written on white stones. And only those who received a white stone with their name on it were invited to enter and participate into specific events. It was your invitation. And again, Jesus is referencing the practices of the pagan festivals, but he's showing a more desired banquet, a more desired celebration. And, and of course, when he talks about in Revelation, uh, the ultimate celebration of eternity, he talks about it in terms of a banquet. He talks about that in the Gospels, that the kingdom of God is like a banquet. And he talks about in the book of Revelation, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this big celebration, this big banquet, this big event that you're invited to. And so he's saying here, you, you know, if you're, if you're faithful to repent, you're, you're going to be invited into that banquet. Names were important in these times. Names reflected character, the details of a person. A new name was significant since it marked a positive change, that something had happened in the life of that person. Abram became Abraham when he became the father of the Israel, uh, you know, the Hebrew nation. Jacob became Israel after wrestling with God and finally surrendering himself to be the one who who God would use to build this great nation. Simon became Peter when when Jesus looked at him and said, this is who you are, but this is who you're going to become, and this is what your future looks like. And so Jesus is saying, those who are faithful, you're going to receive a new name. There's going to be a change in you. Something's going to happen in you that's going to, you know, I'm going to work in you in such a way that there's something better waiting for you than you would ever know here. Those who heard Jesus call to repent of their sinful, compromising lifestyles were promised eternal life as a reward 
rather than these temporary rewards that they were availing of. So, what? I believe there are some truths we see in this passage that are important for us to understand. The first one I would call is unusual. Here we are, approximately 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this message was written, and Christians are still the most, for the most part, a misunderstood, rejected group in society. Approximately 200,000 Christians are martyred every single year for their faith. In fact, of all the people who die worldwide because of their faith, 80% of them are Christians. Christians are murdered at an alarming rate in comparison to anyone else for their faith. Christians are still a misunderstood rejected group in society. Now, I believe that these extremes that I'm referencing to are not common in our North American culture and part of the world. We're not watching Christians being martyred and persecuted in the ways that we see uh, all around the world. And some of you have seen that up close because it's from places that you have originated from. Still, it's not always easy being a follower of Jesus in our culture if, in fact, we're truly committed to living the way Jesus calls us to live. It's easy if we're holding to the culture, but it's not easy if we're holding to his name. Christians in our culture are often viewed as old-fashioned, lacking reality, out of touch, prejudiced, judgmental. And if we were to be honest, some of that reputation we've earned because some are old-fashioned, out-of-touch, judgmental, prejudiced. (laughs) It's the truth. But some of it is a reputation we've earned. Some of it is a reputation that we've inherited because, and this really bothers me, i got to say, when someone shows up on the news at night and they're claiming to be speaking for Christians, that really bothers me because that's I yell at the TV and throw my shoe usually because I'm saying, they're not speaking for me. They're not speaking for me, but they claim to speak. And so sometimes we're labeled that way because some people who just, uh, you know, are presumptuous enough to think that they're speaking for all of us, uh, you know, they, they, they color us in that way. But much of what we are called to face is truthfully just simply means it, it's, it's the result of identifying with Jesus. Jesus is offensive to a sinful culture. He is. He was offensive when he walked the earth. And as his followers, we are offensive as we live what he's asked us to live. There's no way around it. In comparison to culture, Christians have always been and will continue to be an unusual group. Because our citizenship is not of this world. Our kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. The the rules and the guidelines of the kingdom of God are different than the kingdom of this world. So look at your neighbor and say, you're very unusual. Don't do that. That's an American thing. Let's not do that today. Secondly, compromise. 
When Jesus revealed in the message to Pergamum, what he revealed is this. Within this congregation was a mix of those who were faithful and those who projected the image of faithfulness but lived lives of compromise. This difficult truth, the difficult truth, folks, is that this same reality has always existed in the church and sadly continues to exist today. Let's not kid ourselves. Culture can be very seductive. We're drawn to money. We're drawn to power. We're drawn to greed. We're drawn to acquiring and, 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 and living our lives to acquire. We're drawn to immorality and pornography and, and sinfulness. We're drawn to lifestyles that are not reflected, reflective of kingdom living. It's just the reality. And Satan is crafty. He entices believers. He entices us. He sets the trap and he baits the trap. He baits it with the things that we crave and long for and desire. And like some in Pergamum, we sometimes, let's be honest, we sometimes want the best of both worlds. We want the best of both worlds. We sometimes live dual lives. Holding on to Jesus with this hand and holding on to a compromised culture in the other. Sometimes we do. And sometimes we justify our behavior like they did in Pergamum. That this is somehow okay. That we've convinced ourselves. You know, we've replaced the truth for a lie, and we've convinced ourselves that it's okay to live this lifestyle and these lifestyles and to acquire these things and to have these passions and goals and desires and still follow Jesus. And we become comfortable with sin. And we ask, well, what harm can it do? And the truth is we have been drawn away from the truth. We've been seduced because the bait and the trap is attracting and appealing to us. It just is. And like the church in Pergamum, even if we're not the ones participating, we sometimes are guilty of allowing this behavior to go on in our faith community without holding people accountable. I want to say sadly this morning that I have seen that more times than I wish I had in 32 years of ministry. It's sad that we allow the things to go on that we allow to go on because somehow we, we just don't know how we should address it. I've even had people mad at me. I know that's going to take a while for that to sink in that someone, I could actually make somebody mad at me. But it's true. That's true. I'd like to do a statistic of how many of you have not been mad at me at one point or another. Sometimes I've had people very angry with me because I've held people accountable who are living sinful lifestyles and they feel I should have just left it alone. They don't know me very well. I'm not very good at leaving things alone. I'm the guy that hits the hornet's nest with the stick. 
Sometimes we look the other way because we feel that the overall good that a person has done outweighs their sin. Mm. And that's never true. On the other hand, sometimes, without realizing we're doing it, we make a list of things that are more serious than other things. Hmm. So these things are really serious. These things are not so serious. And as long as, you know, uh, we don't do these things that are really serious, we convince ourselves it's okay. So we find ourselves speaking out against certain lifestyles, yet we engage in, I don't know, hypothetically, gossip. Because gossip is a lesser sin. Right? Gossip is small. Homosexuality is big, right? No, I don't think so. We speak out against immorality. But on the other hand, we're not supportive of leadership. Well, that's a big one. That's not really important. It's a lesser sin, right? Not according to the Bible I read. We can stand up against false teaching, but then we're angry, selfish people. I'm talking to all of us. I've been angry and selfish, I think, at least twice. Jen can testify. Sometimes both at once. Most people wrap those two together. We're angry because we're selfish and we're not getting what we want. So we, we, we'll stand up against false teaching. We'll, we'll keep that at the door, but we can be angry and selfish when things don't go the way we want them to go. Well, that's not what I would have done. That's not how I think it should have gone. And I'm angry and I'm selfish, and that's okay because that's a lesser sin than false teaching or, or sexual immorality, isn't it? Not according to the Bible I read. What we need in our lives is consistency. Believing what is true and then living in a way that reflects what we believe to be true. No compromise, no justification, no giving ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. And let me just say, I believe it's time for us mature Christians follow me here, to be mature. There's a thought. I'm reminded of the story of a lady in Newfoundland who said to her pastor, I've been in the way for 40 years. He said, it might be time to get out of the way. It's time for mature Christians to be mature. To set the example for the the younger generation. Folks, i got to tell you, of all the things, and you might note, a few things do frustrate me. But of all the things that frustrate me from a church perspective, I don't think anything frustrates me more when people who have served Jesus for so long, who should know better, behave in ways that are disappointing. I just find that really frustrating. It's time for us mature Christians to be mature and to set the example for those who are younger in the faith and to demonstrate for them proper behavior, proper attitudes, proper handling of circumstances. It's time we set that example, not just for our own children, which is a good place to start, but in the church family as a whole. 
Folks, there are many ways to compromise. You know, some of you aren't going to leave today and go out there and, and you do something like majorly sinful. But there's a lot of ways to compromise because compromising is basically living different than what you claim to believe. And so we got to be honest with ourselves. That's what Jesus is doing in this whole intervention. He's saying to these churches, I know you. I walk among you. I'm in the midst of you. I know your heart. I know your attitudes. I know your thoughts. I know your intentions. I know your plans. I know your fake smile. I know what's going on inside of it. I know, I know, I know. And he's calling us to accountability and saying, listen, be honest with yourself. Do our lives, do our attitudes, do our thoughts, do our actions align with what we say we believe? Because there's no place for compromise as a follower of Jesus. Finish your favorite part. Rediscovery. I personally believe the church needs to rediscover the art of repentance. I want to say that again. I personally believe that the church, all of us who are part of the church, needs to rediscover the art of repentance. Because I believe that we have forgotten how to be a repentant people at a time when we need to repent the most. Jesus is calling us as his church today. Notice these messages weren't written to the pagans in Pergamum. They're not standing on the corner shouting out to the sinful people. He's talking to the church, his body, And he's calling the church, he's calling us to see our sin and to make the changes and to start living on compromising lives. And the call goes out to the whole church. We must not be living in sin, nor should we allow sin to go on and not confront it. And my my guess would be that most of us should be so busy cleaning up our own backyard that we probably don't get much time to see somebody else's. But holding people accountable in a loving and con- way and confronting sin with the goal being their restoration and, 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 and their life in Christ, even those closest to us, I know it's not easy, but it's important. We can't look away. We can't look away from ourselves to somebody else, and we can't look away from others because it's too intimidating or we want to pretend it's all okay or it's too awkward. Can't do it. Because the effects of sin spread quickly. I've seen how sin destroys marriages and families, and homes, and churches, and workplaces. It spreads quickly. It goes deep. It brings damage. It causes hurt. No one sins alone. And Jesus cannot and will not tolerate sin. And because of his love for us, he desires to see us get it right. 
to be in proper relationship with him. Jesus has prepared something so much bigger than the right here and right now. And I don't know how many times I've said this in my ministry, but we spend so much of our lives acquiring things, making things important that don't have one second of eternity attached to them. While the things that matter go neglected. He rewards us on earth with his mercy and his love and his blessing and his care and his wisdom, but his eternal rewards are so much greater. It's the bigger picture. And someday we will stand before God. We probably don't preach this stuff enough anymore, but folks, someday we're going to stand before God. We're going to be accountable for our lives, whether we want to hear it or not whether we want to attend a church that never talks about this stuff or not, the truth is the Word of God says that someday we're going to give an account of our lives. We're going to stand before the one who will either see us as innocent or because of his blood and because of his acceptance and forgiveness or or guilty because we didn't live that life. And so we have to ask ourselves today where we stand It's important to ask ourselves where we stand. Don't think about it this week. Don't get back to me on Wednesday. Think about it right here and right now. Where do you stand? What's happening in your life? What what garbage is in your life that that other people don't know about? What is it you're, you're, you're living? What is it you're striving for? What is it that has messed you up? What is it? Where do you stand? Are you confident today in your relationship with Jesus? Is it what he wants it to be? Or are there some things that you you need to make right? Are there some changes that you need to make? I'd be shocked if anybody in this room would say today, yeah, no, everything's good. In a few minutes, I'm going to be so busy looking after mine that I probably won't even get to yours. Folks, if there's stuff in our lives, we need to take care of it. We need to take care of it. Better still, we need to let him take care of it. What are we holding on to? Are we holding on to his name and that that only? Are we holding on to other things too? I'm going to invite our worship team back. Folks, if we desire a world to receive the message of the gospel, we need to be consistent in how we live our lives, not compromising to align with culture. The world can smell hypocrisy a million miles away. In comparison to culture, Christians, yes, have always been and will continue to be an unusual group. And it's because we need to live lives in consistency, believing what's true and living lives that reflect it. No compromise, no justification. Jesus is calling his church today all of us to see our sin, to make changes, to live uncompromising lives. Why? Because it's bigger than here and now. It's bigger than all of this. And he wants us to experience it, and he wants us to see the big picture, that it's worth living for him here, but it's also worth it for there when that day comes.